Mike Grocott is a Professor of Anaesthesia and Critical Care at the University of Southampton and a consultant in critical care medicine at University Hospital Southampton NHS Foundation Trust in the UK. He leads a critical care research area within the Southampton NIHR Respiratory Biomedical Research Unit and is head of the Integrative Physiology and Critical Illness Group at the University of Southampton. He also leads the Anaesthesia and Critical Care Research Unit within University Hospital Southampton NHS Foundation Trust. Mike is also the Laboratory Director of the Extreme Everest 2 project and in 2007 scaled the world's highest mountain, Mount Everest. Mike's particular interests include human responses to hypoxia, oxygen transport and utilisation, measurement and improving outcomes following surgery, and acute lung injury and fluid therapy. Today I have the particular honour of welcoming him to the Crit IQ podcast. Um, Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Todd. It's a delight to be here. Now, you're currently in uh, Kathmandu as part of the Extreme Everest Project, and I was just wondering whether you could outline some of the aims of the project for us. Sure. The, um, so this is the Extreme Everest 2 expedition. Uh, it follows on from the Caldwell Extreme Everest uh, expedition that we uh, undertook in 2007. Uh, and the, the aim of the whole program of research uh, and the... the these two big field studies have been, uh, I guess, the highlights, but there, there is, there's a whole program behind it of uh, both sea level hypobaric hypoxic testing and, and, and patient testing. The aim of it is to understand more about how our patients adapt to hypoxia. And, and it sometimes seems a little bit left field to be looking at, at mountaineers uh, high on uh, you know, the highest mountains of the world, but, but actually they, they give us a great model our feeling is that one of the problems with a lot of critical care research is, is that uh, it's had to be in uh, animals or in, in benchtop preparations, and then there's a, a big translational gap. You know, sepsis is a, is a really good example where we've had all these great uh, cures for mouse sepsis that, that have not subsequently worked in humans. And that's, uh, and, you know, critical care doctors know this, that, that humans are all about the interaction of multiple complex physiological systems. And I think unless you study whole humans, you're in danger of being misled. And so we've accepted some of the limitations of healthy people going to altitude. It's, it's clearly not exactly the same as intensive care, but it does give us a model for studying uh, progressive adaptation to hypoxia in, in the integrated physiological setting in whole humans. I guess it's fair to say that, um, you know, you've taken humans to the what would appear to be the end of their physiological range um, and one of the more extraordinary papers that I've ever read was one that you released in 2009, I think, of your time uh, that you're talking about um, in the Extreme Everest Project, where you took um, climbers to the top of Mount Everest and sampled their arterial blood gases. Can you tell me about that project and what you found? Yeah, so, the, uh, so this is actually, it's actually a relatively small part of the, the sweep of research from 2007, but it's, it's obviously achieved a lot of prominence because the, the figures are uh, extraordinary. So uh, as part of that expedition, uh, the, the main part of it was a very large number of lowlanders ascending to, to Everest Base Camp uh, and being studied in detail. But as part of it, we had climbers going higher and higher on the mountain, and, and some of them reached the summit. Now, we'd aimed to try and measure the arterial blood gas on the, on the very top of Everest, but actually the conditions were a little bit inclement. So it's about uh, minus 25 degrees and about 20 knots of wind. 
so I, we think prudently we uh, we descended a, a couple of hundred meters to a place called the, the balcony which is relatively sheltered it was a little bit later in the day and a little bit warmer and we there took um, four femoral arterial stabs uh, and one venous stab in fact just to to absolutely confirm that we were we were sampling the right uh, the right compartment and we had a a very good friend and, and, and colleague of ours, a Sherpa, ran those samples down from 8,400 metres to 6,400 metres, uh, where in Camp 2 we had a uh, proper benchtop blood gas analyzer running off 240-volt AC, uh, and we analysed those samples uh, in duplicate uh, and, and got the results that were published subsequently in the, in the New England Journal of Medicine. The, I mean, the, the data is... Um, that there'd been speculation as to what the levels of oxygen would be in, in humans on the summit of Everest based on some expired uh, gas measurements made in the early 1980s. Uh, and uh, our measures, the, the, there were four subjects. There was a very substantial range across those subjects, and, and the lowest values were substantially lower than expected. And, and really, I mean, for me, and I've, I'm familiar with these numbers, I've seen them over the last six years, I still find it extraordinary that um, you know we had we had oxygen levels uh, PA arterial partial pressure of oxygen uh, of of around 20 millimeters of mercury, so under under three kilopascals for some of those individuals, and and I was with them; they were functioning normally. What the person with the lowest value was one of the two of us who took um, took the blood gas samples and they did them first pass, no problem. They're quite extraordinary numbers, aren't they? And um, you know, you make the point in the discussion of that paper that uh, if you exposed a, a lowlander like myself to that sort of um, partial pressure of oxygen, I'd be unconscious within minutes. What is it about uh, acclimatisation that enables humans to function at that sort of altitude? So I guess in, in many ways that's, the, that's at the core of a, a lot of our research because if you could... Uh, if, we, if we had that essence and we could give that to our patients, it, it, it could make a dramatic way to how we could manage them clinically. Um, as you say, if, if you acutely expose people to, to that sort of level of hypoxia, and these experiments have been done 50, 60 years ago when, uh, when aviators uh, in, in jet fighters first started getting very high, uh, around the summit of Everest, you'd pass out within two or three minutes. Uh, and yet uh, some individuals, not on our trip, we used supplemental oxygen to climb, but we took it off for the measurements, but s s some individuals have successfully climbed Everest without supplemental oxygen. Uh, and so there's this extraordinary process of adaptation that, that given sufficient time, and we're talking uh, three to four weeks at least, possibly longer to, to really adapt well to the, the summit of Everest, but at, at lower altitudes and, and lower levels of hypoxia, lesser periods of time, uh, it essentially allows people to function pretty normally. Now, the classical story has been that this is all about changes in, in uh, oxygen flux and uh, what we as intensivists often refer to as oxygen delivery. But actually, our data and, and, and some of the data before it doesn't really support that. It, it, it's not that the people who have the greatest uh, level of oxygen carriage in the blood uh, that do best, uh, and there's very little relationship between the changes in oxygen content or oxygen delivery, and the different functional measures that we can make. And our belief is that actually most of the, the really critical adaptations are, are occurring at a, uh, a cellular level or even subcellular level. So we think, um, not surprising, the mitochondria, mitochondrion is, is a very important part of this, and we've got good evidence of, uh, of changes in mitochondrial uh, function now. So uh, data that, that, that probably won't be published for a year or so, but the early data that we're getting from this trip using 
uh, muscle biopsies and, and immediate live respirometry are suggesting that there are clear changes in mitochondrial function. And the other, the other area we see changes is in the microcirculation. So at a tissue level, the max, matching of uh, delivery with consumption uh, appears in some individuals to be more deranged than in, than in others at altitude, and, and we've done a lot of work in that area as well. So I think, I think the crux of the matter may be much more at a, at a tissue and cellular level than, than the, the kind of macrovascular oxygen delivery story that we've always received. What's the sort of timescale of uh, these sorts of changes, Mike? How quickly could you expect to see uh, the adaptation process evolving? So if you're going to moderate altitude, uh, if you like the, the top end of, uh, of some of the ski resorts that many of us would go to, say 3,000 metres, 3,500 metres, most people can adapt pretty well to that sort of altitude within a, a few days to a week. They may not have got the full adaptation, but they've got, they've got most of the adaptation in that sort of time and they're, they're no longer getting any signs of altitude illness. Clearly, if you're, going some, if you're going to the absolute extreme, like the summit of Everest, you need substantially longer time. Um, but, but I think that there, it is clear that, that substantial changes occur within a few days and then the, the greater the degree of hypoxia, the longer the duration of time you need to adapt properly to that, uh, that level of, of hypoxia. Despite the appearance that people are functioning normally at that sort of altitude and with those sorts of partial pressures of oxygen, there have been a number of papers that have suggested that um, persistent exposure may have longer-term neurocognitive impacts. Do we know much about that, and is it, is it a real entity? So, uh, in, if I take that in, in two parts, because, I mean, in, there's the clinical uh, context and then there's the, the mountaineering context. In the mountaineering context, that some of the early data did suggest that there were both functional and, and indeed structural consequences to ascending to the, the summit of Everest. Uh, we, we couldn't find that in our data. We did uh, very high-quality uh, magnetic resonance imaging of the brain before and afterwards in, in several of our climbers, and we did some neurocognitive testing, and, and clearly the neurocognitive function at altitude when hypoxic was not as good as it was at sea level, but, but when these guys came back down again, and certainly after a two or three months, the function was, was back to baseline. So we've been using really quite detailed, uh, you know, right up to date modern neurocognitive methods. We've not been able to find a persistent neurocognitive deficit, even in the climbers who went over 8,000 metres, and we've also been unable to find any structural changes, which, which was a surprise to us. Um, now, in the clinical context, uh, I think the picture's not as clear, uh, but then in the clinical context, we've got uh, additional interacting variables, and in particular, in, in critical illness, we almost invariably have the coexistence of both hypoxia at a cellular level and acute inflammation, and, and, and I think those two together uh, may produce a rather different story. Uh, and, and certainly the, uh, the ARDSnet data, you know, the long-term follow-up from the ARDSnet, is suggestive that, that hypoxemia uh, may be... Uh, one of the causes of neurocognitive uh, dysfunction. But, but again, very difficult to tell if you look at those studies. Um, that, that's not, what, that's not the, the question, not the comparison that was set in the study uh, relative hypoxemia versus uh, a better oxygenated patient. It was a, a study of uh, fluid regimens, in my view, the most notable of them. And, um, and, and quite interestingly, the, the signal from the different fluid regimens seems stronger than the signal from the, from the hypoxemia, as, as I read the paper. As we turn to the, the clinical 
uh, implications of all of this. It's, um, it's clear that the, the practice of providing oxygen to unwell patients has been well established in healthcare. But recently there have been some concerns raised about the clinical circumstances in which oxygen may be harmful. What, what are the harms associated with oxygen? So I, I think there's some things that we know, and, and I suspect there are other harms that, we're, that we're, we will learn more about in the coming years. Um, I guess the striking thing, thing is that uh, where people have done the head-to-head -head comparison in a randomised control trial, uh, in the majority of cases, the, the patients given the less oxygen, the, 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 the more hypoxemic group, have tended to do better. Uh, and and these, the, I must stress this is, this is limited data, and it's drawing from a variety of contexts. But if you look at acute stroke, acute myocardial infarction, uh, resuscitation, uh, there's a slightly more confused picture of neonatal resuscitation now, but th there is a, there's clearly a signal that in some cases, if you, if, you, if you don't just give unlimited oxygen, which I think is what we commonly do clinically, uh, if, if, you, if you compare, for example, in acute myocardial infarction, room air with uh, excess oxygen, well, you know, with oxygen therapy, the room air patients seem to do better. Uh, the recent proxy study uh, looking at uh, immediate post-operative oxygenation uh, showed some longer-term mortality gains, particularly in, in cancer patients, from patients given less rather than more oxygen post-operatively. So I think we've got clinical data, randomised controlled trial data, to, to at least raise the question uh, in, in different circumstances as to whether we should be giving a little bit less rather than a little bit more. Uh, I think we need to be very cautious in this area. Uh, the, the last thing that, that, that I or my colleagues would want is that uh, everybody suddenly starts giving no oxygen or, very, or allowing their patients to be profoundly hypoxemic in an uncontrolled manner because I'm, I'm pretty confident that would be very harmful. So I think this, this is not something for us at the bedside to be acting on at the moment. It's something for the, the, the researchers. Uh, and and it, we need to tread gently. So we need to, to slowly explore uh, what levels... Well, you need to find markers of, of harm of hypoxemia and then start to explore what levels patients can tolerate. But I think we know from isolated case reports and case series of, of patients in extremis that, that, that very low levels of either partial pressure of oxygen or oxygen content, and I'm thinking, for example, of some of the Jehovah's Witnesses that have survived uh, profound anemia after surgery, some of these things are survivable without obvious major consequences. So I just, I just think what we we have is an opportunity to reconsider uh, how much oxygen we give and recognise that, that uh, giving it without limit may well have harm. So, so we might want to target things a little bit more carefully. Mike, is there an understanding of what the pathological mechanism might be? Is it the, the FiO2 is too high or is it a result of inflated PaO2s or is it a mixture of both? Do we know why this causes harm? Uh, I think we've got some clues. I don't, I don't think one could, would, could confidently state that, that, that we know. Uh, I mean, we have very old data suggesting that a high FiO2 uh, can cause harm in the lungs uh, and a belief that that is in part mediated by uh, oxidative stress and reactive oxygen species. Uh, so that, that's one clear mechanism. Whether that has systemic consequences as well is less clear. Uh, I think uh, we have reasonable data to suggest that hyperoxemia uh, is also uh, likely to result in oxidative stress, but it's a very confusing picture because hypoxemia can result in oxidative stress. So I think, I think it's going to be a, a complex interplay of uh, some of these, these uh, reactive oxygen species, 
and, and the various interactions with, for example, nitric oxide, biology, nitrates, nitrites, etc., uh, that will be implicated. But it, it's, it's likely to be different from patient to patient. Some, some patients, in the, in the same way that some mountaineers happily go up Everest without supplemental oxygen and other people struggle to get to Everest base camp, some patients will, I suspect, uh, comfortably tolerate low oxygen levels and therefore allow us to both ventilate them more gently and give them less inspired oxygen, whereas, whereas other patients will not. And, and part of the key to this, I think, particularly in this area of individualised medicine and all the information that we can get from the omics technologies, part of the key to, bit to it will be identifying who is likely to, to benefit from this type of approach, who can tolerate a lower oxygen level and, and who can't. So the, the, to summarise the, the point so far, there's a, it seems that humans can tolerate, at least some humans can tolerate, far lower levels of partial pressure of oxygen than conventional wisdom would, would think that we could, while there are apparently some harms associated with um, providing patients with oxygen. So the natural extension of that, of course, is that there may be a group of patients who can tolerate lower levels of oxygen. Are there enough similarities between critically ill patients and, and patient, oh, sorry, people at uh, altitude to, to reinforce that hypothesis? I think what the altitude data will uh, give us, so beyond the, the, the blood gas paper, and, and the, I mean... If you look at all our subjects at base camp, they all have a PAO2 of under eight. They're, they're somewhere around six or seven. And they are, they all, so we had 192 of the 198 of our subjects last time got to base camp. They all came back. They're all absolutely fine. Um, but they had time to adapt to that level of oxygen. So I think, uh, you know, I, I would, uh, and these things are not well characterized, but I would say that most people seem to aim for a PAO2 uh, threshold of about eight kilopascals at, at that point. Uh, they will start to turn up the oxygen. Um, I'm pretty confident that we could get away with a little bit lower than that. But again, I emphasise this is, uh, you know, we need to do the clinical studies to be sure that we're not causing harm. I think where, where we think the value of our data will be is, is, is because we're looking at very large groups. So we looked at more than 200 subjects in, the, in 2007. We've got another uh, nearly 150 subjects in, in Extreme Everest 2 in 2013. Uh, including some Sherpa subjects who we know have a particular beneficial form of adaptation. Uh, and I think being able to look across that large group of subjects, at the people who identify the, those who are adapting better, identify those who are adapting worse, and, and then, and this will be complicated, so it's, it's a systems biology, systems medicine type problem, but, but look for the signatures of, of what it is that makes them a good adapter or alternatively uh, a, a relatively poor adapter. And the good adapters, they're the people you can say, well, okay, let's try a little bit of permissive hypoxemia. And the relatively poor adapters are the people you, want, you might want to try different approaches with. Uh, and, and once you get these signatures, those, these signatures of different biochemical and physiological signals may also start to give us some clues as to what the underlying mechanisms are. So we can actually say with a bit more confidence whether it's oxidative stress, what type of oxidative stress, which, which key mediators are involved. In a recent article in Critical Care Medicine, you proposed the concept of precise control of arterial oxygenation. Can you tell me what you mean by this concept and what you think the steps are that we need to take to make it possible? So I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to raise that article. So Dan Martin and I co-wrote that. Uh, as it turned out, I, I led our 2007 expedition. Dan 
is leading our 2013 expedition. So we kind of switch roles uh, for this particular project. And it's, it's a, uh, this area is a passion of, of, of both of ours. It was really thinking through the whole concept of permissive hypoxemia and, and this balance between the potential harm <clears throat> excuse me, of inadequate oxygenation, which we're all acutely aware of on a day-to-day -day basis, but also probably the less well-recognized harms of excess oxygenation. And even in patients in whom you're not necessarily going to target a lower level of, uh, of oxygen, so the permissive hypoxemia approach, I suspect that we are going to be much more focused in the future on uh, giving them the right amount. So not too much and not too little. Uh, and, and therefore, that has practical day-to-day -day therapeutic implications. Instead of saying, make sure the PAO2 is above uh, 8 kilopascals, we, we, we'll say, could you have it between 8 and 10 or 9 and 11, for example. Uh, and, and, it ha and in order to know where to target that, we're, go we're going to need some additional measures to establish whether in an individual patient the level of oxygen targeted is, is right or it's causing harm either from hypoxemia or hyperoxemia. So I just think like, like most other interventions that, that we can think of, with oxygen we, give, we essentially give it in an unlimited fashion because it's a good thing. And we've done the same in the past with fluids, we've done the same in the past with haemofiltration, with a whole variety of different interventions. And what the, the, the play of time usually brings us back to the fact that, that although all these interventions bring benefits, they also have harms that go along with them and we get better and better at targeting to the, the right amount in the right patient. And, and I think we're just at the beginning of that with oxygen therapy. And, and the underappreciated harm has been the problems associated with hyperoxia. And I think people will become increasingly aware of that. And therefore, the, the precise control of arterial oxygenation approach, I think, is, is likely to be the way we go. And ideally targeted to individual patients when the technology to do that becomes available. I'd just like to touch on that final point that you make of titrating this therapy to individual patients. In the next five to ten years, what sort of things do you see as evolving that, we'll, uh, that we will be using to target oxygen therapy for? So I suspect a whole variety of different uh, biomarkers, if you will, uh, from uh, genetic signals uh, through... Uh, specific physiological responses. Uh, so it might be that we, that we give people a, a test dose of hyperoxia or hypoxia and look at their, just their, some relatively basic physiological responses. Uh, and, and then uh, more sophisticated uh, kind of metabolomic measures of particular uh, inflammatory or biochemical markers that, that we uh, come to learn are indicators of cellular stress from hypoxia or, or hyperoxia. So I think, I think uh, it, it, they're going to be a variety of different types of signal, uh, and they're quite likely, uh, and, and we really, I think we're just on the verge with, uh, with the, the real high throughput measurements. So we can get an extraordinary amount of data from our patients now, uh, certainly in the research environment we, we can, and, and increasingly we will be able to clinically, uh, in real time measuring a whole variety of different metabolites and uh, the, the protein output, the transcriptome, we can get their, their, uh, their genetics. And I think we'll be able to start to put those together in quite complex uh, pictures. So, so a particular physiological signal in combination with a biochemical signal in someone with a particular genetic profile will be a green light for permissive hypoxemia, whereas a different pattern will say, no, 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 don't do that, but aim for a higher oxygen level, but no higher than, than, than this particular level.
where do you see the um, the lower limits? If uh, if you had your um, opportunity to speculate, how low do you think we can go? So, uh, very good, very good question. Very difficult to answer. Uh, I would be surprised if in many patients we don't feel much more comfortable going down to, say, seven or six kilopascals as, as we learn more about this. But again, I, you know, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't encourage people to do that clinically yet. I suspect, uh, and, and we, you know, we all recognise this about critical care, there's, there's the way we treat the majority of patients and then there's a, there's a handful of patients who, who are absolutely ex in extremis and we are forced uh, on occasion to try things empirically and we're forced into a into a corner where we, we can't withdraw, but we're having to try treatments that you wouldn't consider in other people. And I suspect that we will see patients, uh, and in fact, I suspect if people had reported everything that's happened clinically, we have already seen patients that have survived uh, hypoxemia down to four. Well, certainly we've seen patients, and I'm sure many others have, uh, who've got COPD who are ventilated, who, who survive having oxygen levels transiently around four kilopascals. It may be that in some people we can go even lower than that, but I'm, the last thing I'd want to do is encouraging people to do that now. And, and I think it's it's very difficult to know, in contrast to the mountaineering situation where you don't have the infl acute information, it's very difficult to know what the the lowest value should be where you have the additional uh, consequences of, of the inflammatory uh, parts of critical illness. Critically ill patients are, of course, not mountain climbers. What do we know about the way they adapt to uh, those persistent hypoxemic events in critical care? I, I don't think we know very much at all. Um, one of the advantages of our study is that we've, we've, uh, we haven't actually ended up with a large number of mountain climbers. We've had a number of... Uh, so we had an age range within the study of from 18 to 72, and minor illnesses were not an exclusion to taking part. Clearly, major cardiorespiratory problems were, but we, we have a spectrum of the, the fitter and un, less fit in the population across a very wide age range, and I think that will help us. Uh, it helps us in terms of, of the translation of, of this. I think, I think one area that, that I probably I haven't focused on in any of the answers so far that I think is very important is the, uh, the really critical difference of different time phases of critical illness. So I think we know from a whole variety of other uh, interventions that that acute injury is different from established critical illness and uh, uh, an example would be the, the whole goal-directed fluid therapy story where uh, to my mind there is good data to suggest that in acute injury or in the perioperative setting for example uh, that there is benefit uh, and we've got plenty of good data suggesting that there's either no benefit or indeed harm in established critical illness and I think the same is true for a whole variety of different things I think we have we have uh, distinct patterns of illness that respond differently to different interventions. Uh, and we don't know in each patient when they transition from the acute injury phase to the uh, established critical illness phase. And, and I think that will be an additional variable that plays on this whole story. So the effects of hypoxemia or hyperoxemia acutely uh, may be tolerated in very different ways from those patients who have properly established critical illness and may have been... Uh, both hypoxemic for a while, but also critically ill for a while. And the whole, the whole Mervyn Singer's work about uh, relative mitochondrial shutdown, so, so rather than it being multiple organ failure, it's actually multiple organ survival. It's, it's a good thing to, to shut all your metabolic systems down as much as possible while the, the storm of critical illness happens to give you a chance to recover afterwards. Uh, I think the issue of timing 
and the phases of critical illness will be will be really important in this whole story. Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and a privilege. Um, we wish you the best for your uh, research uh, as the season goes on. Thank you very much for your time. Todd, thank you very much.